Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza died a few weeks before he planned to transfer power to his handpicked successor. What are the short and long-term risks for Burundi's turbulent transition? And Kenyan's economy has been hammered by the COVID-19 pandemic, but a clear picture of its situation has been clouded by speculation about its external debt and revenue generation. How do we separate fact from fiction? Plus, we discuss media freedom and misinformation during COVID-19. How are leaders curbing freedom of speech and what is the best way to tackle misinformation about the virus? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Burundi is undergoing a tumultuous political transition. The outgoing president, Pierre Nkurunziza, died just before he was about to hand over power. The government said that Kurunziza died of a heart attack, but there is skepticism from some observers. His wife was evacuated to Nairobi to be treated for coronavirus at the end of May. What's the outlook for Burundi in the wake of these major developments? Joining me to discuss Burundi and other topics is Don Labiri, former U.S. ambassador to Burundi, Limwiti, chief editor of Africa Check, and Antonia Zapula, the CEO of the Thomson Reuters Foundations. This is our seventh episode in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Okay, Ambassador Liberi, you served in Burundi from 2012 to 2016, and there's a lot for us to unpack today. So let's start with Pierre Nkurunziza's death. Nkurunziza is a former rebel leader who then served as president for 15 years. The government said he died of a heart attack, but many think it may have been COVID-19. Actually, it seems like the cause of his death has been weaponized and various factions within the ruling party are um, arguing one way or the other how he truly died. What do we know? What's actually happening? Well, thank you, Jed. I have to say that this has been a fairly stunning week for Burundi in terms of uh, overall politics. And just focusing on what you just said, President Nkurunziza and the CNDD-FDD political ruling party have been downplaying COVID-19 since the inception of the rest of the world knowing that it existed. And part of the issue has been that they've been unwilling to admit that COVID-19 exists in the country, that many people are in fact dying, that Burundi is unfortunately not set up to prepare and deal with the epidemic. And so they have purposely not only downplayed it, but they have also expelled the World Health Organization and any of the experts who were trying to raise the profile of the disease. So you can imagine when Pierre Nkurunziza passed away very suddenly, not only is it a humiliation if he were to be seen to have passed away from COVID, but there also is a real issue of what does that mean for the rest of the ruling party members and those who were exposed to him, both during the campaign trail as he went with the president-elect on rallies, but also on just the, the, the normal everyday functions of government, when all members of the ruling party meet, they meet without masks, they're in very close uh, quarters together. And so I think this has been a real blow to the ruling party, and they were hastening to say that he died of a heart attack in order to, I think, shift the attention away from COVID. 
But there is a real danger now, and I think there's a real wild card in terms of who else has been exposed. And frankly, there are rumors that even Evariste Ndishame may be ill himself. Yeah, and it's not idle speculation. I mean, we know that Nkirinzi's wife has COVID and has, was hospitalized. And if it's true, I mean, he'll be, I think he'll be the first head of state to die of COVID. So it's very serious because, as you said, the disease may be running rampant through the political elite and they're not confronting it at all. No, absolutely. And as you said, uh, Denise and Corinziza had been evacuated to Nairobi. She was being treated for COVID. Obviously, the linkage there is very close to her husband. So I think the ability of the government to continue to say that he died of a heart attack is being reduced daily. So one of our challenges for this episode, Don, is that we're going to release this on June 25th. Today is June 12th. And so I think that so many things are going to move uh, between now and release. But it's a mess right now in terms of what we understand about the transition. So the Constitution is clear. The National Assembly President, Pascual Nabenda, should be sworn in. But we already are hearing from the vice president, the current vice president, well, that the cabinet will decide. Do you have any thoughts? Is one of these options riskier than the other for stability? Well, as you said, Judge, this is a very, very fast-moving series of events that's going to be unfolding. And just to sort of lay out some of the the situation, Pascal Niabenda, who is the head of the National Assembly and has been since 2015, was in fact in Corinziza's choice to succeed him. But that was overruled by the generals who chose Everest and Dishamay instead. And so... Part of Pascal being identified was it was believed that Nkurunziza could still remain the power behind the throne if Pascal were to be put in office. Obviously, as I said, the generals switched that to Indishime. Part of the real wild card here is what is the health condition of Everest Indishime? Because if, in fact, as rumors are stating, he is ill, that may also throw another very, very big issue into the next couple of weeks, if something were to happen to him in terms of his health. Some of the other electoral positions have not been finalized yet, particularly in the Senate. And so there is a real volatility right now in terms of overall stability, because to be frank, there is a vacuum in terms of who actually is in charge constitutionally in terms of the government, with all the positions not having been determined and even new vice presidents not having been identified. So I think we're going to see a lot of jockeying over the next few weeks, and that will lead to potential instability because one of the reasons why uh, Everest was chosen was because he is actually one among equals in terms of the generals. And if something were to happen to him, or if something were to transpire in terms of overall succession of power, The destabilization of networks is going to be key, and that's one of the key things that's keeping the power elite right now in power in Burundi. Yeah, there's a part of me that is desperate right now to do some scenario analysis because there are so many choose-your-own-adventures here with real implications, both for Burundi, the region, and the international community. And I think this transition is important in the sense that it was in Kiranziza's desire or pushing for a third term that destabilized the country in the first place. And we had this transition. And, you know, the expectation about Everest is that he is backed by the military. So we're talking about status quo continuation. But I, I guess 
I'm curious if you have a different view. Assuming that he is healthy, is there a potential that he could put Burundi in a better place? Or are we going to be talking about a continuation of some of the repression and abuses that we saw under his predecessor? At least I know some people are optimistic that within Kieran Ziza's death, that he won't be able to rule behind the throne as a as he was deemed the official supreme guide. But I'm curious about your thoughts. Well, as I said earlier, in terms of uh, Everest and Dishime himself, he is essentially cut from the same cloth as Nkurunziza. He was one of the rebels who fought during the Civil War alongside Nkurunziza and the generals who basically rule right now. And so when I speak to some of my sources and my own opinion, having met and dealt with Everest, Even though he was not personally known to be as repressive as many of the others who were in positions of power and able to exact a lot of um, violence on some of their competitors, he is seen, as I said earlier, as one among equals. And so the choice might not be his fully to determine. And I think that's one of the key things that we have to focus on, because it really is that group of generals who will continue to rule Burundi. And as I said earlier, the potential now for an internal power struggle and for a destabilization of the networks of power is very high. There is a considerable faction within the party of folks that were not part of the whole civil war struggle who do want to see change. They're very concerned that Burundi has essentially been cut off from the international community. Sanctions have really hurt the country. There's essentially no foreign currency coming into the country. There has been a crop failure, malaria outbreak. So the the, the country economically is doing very, very poorly. And so some change needs to take place in order for the economy to start to turn around. And I'll just throw in another factor here that what many don't understand is that almost half the population of Burundi is under the age of 15. So many of the, the new generation, they did not experience the Civil War. They, they did not experience many of the things that occurred during the, the history of Burundi. But what they have been experiencing is the violence and the repression under the current party rule. And many of them obviously want a different future. We saw that when I was there in between 2012 and 2016, in the lead up to the 2015 elections, there were protests against Nkurunziza taking on a third term. There were protests against the ruling elite about the closing of political space, freedom of speech, civil society, etc. And, you know, more than 500,000 Burundians are in exile outside the country. They want to come back. They want to see a different country. They want to see a different future for themselves and their children. And so the possibility exists for change to take place. However, there's going to have to be a real change in terms of the political elite and the orientation. And unfortunately, there is not much of a private sector in Burundi, so there is very little opportunity for employment outside of the government. So in order for people to maintain a livelihood, uh, economic power, etc., they have to remain within the government. They have to control those organs of government and those networks of power. And that is where the, the real struggle is going to be. There is a possibility for opening. I think that that would need to take place with the assistance of the neighboring countries, 
African institutions like the East African Community, the African Union, and also having the international community hopefully be able to come back in and set up a new set of relationships for the future. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. However, it will not happen overnight, in my opinion, and I think that we're probably going to see some internal struggle and perhaps some violence before that occurs. I hope that that process uh, does not get played out um, to the detriment of, of the Burundian people. But I think we're at a very, very precarious moment in Burundi's history. And we all want it, certainly those of us in the international community want to see Burundi turn a corner. And to be perfectly frank, a destabilized Burundi is not good for the region. It's not good for Central Africa. Uh, it's not good for East Africa. It would have a very, very deleterious effect on the surrounding countries. So I think it's incumbent upon leaders in the region as well as the international community to help Burundi turn a corner during this very, very sensitive and fragile time. Ambassador, thank you so much. First of all, I share both your hope and your prescription, but also I think that we're very lucky to have you to help unpack what's a very fluid event right now. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, let's jump to Kenya. Kenya, led by Uhuru Kenyatta, is East Africa's largest economy. It has been the fourth largest economy, but overtaking Angola to become third largest economy in dollar terms. In early June, Kenya surpassed Angola to become the region's third largest economy. I think that Kenya's rise probably had a lot to do with Angola's fall, being an oil producer. But we're going to use that as an excuse to talk about some of the dimensions of the Kenyan economy. Lee, your organization, Africa Check, you know, has been fantastic when it comes to Kenya. It's one of your focus areas. And in the past year, you've checked on a series of claims about the Kenyan economy, whether it's hitting its revenue targets, whether all of its revenue is being used to service local and external debts, and whether micro, small, and medium enterprises are the lifeblood of the economy. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned over the last year, fact-checking some of these economic uh, points, and then maybe any broader conclusions we can make about the Kenyan economy? Sure. As, as you say, Kenya overtook Angola, but that is more because of Angola's fall. Angola is a major oil exporter. Its oil output and prices have fallen, and its currency has also devalued quite a bit. So it's not because Kenya's economy has suddenly grown in leaps and bounds. We've learned a few things about the Kenyan economies in recent months, and in a nutshell, in short, the Kenyan economy is in a fight of its life. First, the country has consistently not collected enough revenue for the last 10 years at the very least. There are various reasons why, but an interesting one that economists have highlighted is that the government usually starts by climbing its tree from the top. It says that, here, here is what I want to do this financial year. So I'm going out to collect this much amount of money. This is as opposed to saying this is how much money I have got. So I will now budget for that and live within my means. So another significant reason is that of compliance. Tax evasion is still an issue, even as the tax authority has become more aggressive in collecting its dues. The finance minister admitted to us recently that many tax exemptions that have been given have not yielded the expected benefits of growing collection. And it is one reason that even loss-making firms will now 
be taxed for the first time ever, according to the budget statement that was released yesterday. That is the 11th of June, and the government will be taxing 1% of their gross earnings for now because there's a sense a lot of companies are simply not paying or declaring losses to avoid paying tax. Tied to this is that a majority of enterprises in Kenya are small businesses, with most of them being informal and difficult to tax. This means a lot of businesses are outside the tax bracket. Further complicating a complicated picture of underperformance of revenue in Kenya is that President Uhuru Kenyatta, whose term ends in about two years, has staked his legacy on four key areas, these being infrastructure development, provision of affordable housing, raising the share of manufacturing output in the economy, and providing universal health coverage for Kenyans. The sharp focus on infrastructure has then meant that billions of Kenyan shillings have been spent on building a new railway and increasing the length of paved roads. To pay for this, and because there's little room essentially left to increase taxes without stifling growth too much, the country has had to resort to borrowing, including from China. And, and the country has had to significantly raise its debt ceiling in recent years to accommodate this. And so the overall result is that we have an ever-growing fiscal deficit. That is the gap between revenues and what the government wants to spend its money on. In a nutshell, what we have is Kenya borrowing up to 30% of its budget just to, be, to make ends meet. Consider also that the country has battled devastating floods and an astonishing invasion by locusts that have threatened food security. I read one comparison the other day that locusts consume as much food in one day as Kenyans consume in two days. Wow, that's incredible. Yes, yeah. And the damage then becomes apparent and then throw in the big one. Wait, 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 Lee, did you fact check that? Did, did, I, <laughs> I think Africa <laughs> Check needs to fact check that one. Yes, we'd, we'd be happy to fact check ourselves. I just read it. I, um, I found it quite <laughs> interesting, yeah? Me too. Um, locusts are the last things you expect to be a headache for, for, for the country, but hey, it is, yeah? And lastly, throw in the big one, COVID-19. You know, you've had a pandemic that has applied the brakes on an economy that had until now been growing at about 5% per annum. So leading to the country now having its growth projection for this year from 5.4% to 2.5%. Then throw in the expected job losses in an environment where unemployment was already high and you have what, almost a perfect storm. So indeed, the IMF recently raised Kenya's potential debt distress level from moderate to high. So it is against this background that the country has joined other African countries in advocating for debt relief, such as a suspension of interest repayments, which for Kenya would amount to savings of about 25% of its ordinary tax revenue. So if that is not a fight for its life, tell me what is. No, it's a great point, and, and it's absolutely a dire picture and it's interesting because I think President Kenyatta has been at the forefront, along with Prime Minister Abiy of Ethiopia and Ramaphosa of South Africa, really pushing at the global level for debt relief. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to talk about this really interesting op-ed that he did, a CNN op-ed he did. And it's in part interesting for a couple of things. First of all, it's done with President Four of, of the Seychelles and the Prime Minister of Tunisia. And this is kind of an odd pairing because these aren't three countries that we usually see uh, aligned together or sort of grouping together. But I think the way that they presented themselves is they're middle-income in countries for the region. It's just a focus on an international audience. But I hope you'll like this one, Lee. This is my favorite part. 
In the op-ed, Kenyatta points out that the Kenyan-based Stratmore University defeated Harvard University in a competition based on a World Trade Organization international trade law. So it was a nice little boost for Kenya and Kenyan morale and Kenyan nationalism and Kenyan pride about the top level of economists and thinkers in Kenya. So I just wanted to, to share that point. I don't know if you read that and if what you thought of it, but I, I really loved that. You know, I would love to fact check that just to bust your bubble a bit. Um, <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I'll be definitely look, taking a closer look at it. In the last couple of episodes of this podcast, we've tackled politics, health, security, economics, all of the dimensions of the pandemic. But today we're going to discuss media freedom and misinformation. Now, Antonio, you penned an important piece for African Arguments entitled The Three Ways States Are Using COVID-19 to Curb Media Freedoms. Can you walk us through the key points and maybe draw out some examples specifically from Sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the link between health and freedom of information, it, it's pretty obvious. If, if you don't tell the public the key facts about, for example, COVID-19, how can you expect the public can actually make informed decision? But we're really seeing a dangerous pattern emerging here. And it's that some governments uh, across the world and also in sub-Saharan Africa are increasingly taking advantage of this pandemic to restrict news coverage and res- restrict media freedom. And this is very dangerous. The, it has long-term consequences of suppressing independent journalism and obviously can significantly curtail and erode civil liberties going forward. I guess there's a number of approaches here. The first one is what I call the unintended consequences. So it's governments that are really struggling to contain the misinformation and are actually imposing penalties which are really harsh to contain this plurial misinformation. A good example is here South Africa. South Africa uh, has a relatively free press, actually ranks really high on the World Press Freedom Index, is actually higher than the UK, than Italy and the US, but then has introduced really, really harsh penalties here which actually include imprisonment for disseminating misinformation. And and the risk here is that actually journalists are resulting into adopting self-censorship behaviors. The second aspect that we're noticing is actually uh, harsher, is, is when governments are actively suppressing criticism of uh, the leadership response towards COVID or some specific policies. A good example here is Egypt, for example, where we know that the Guardian reporter Ruth Michelson was actually kicked out of the country because she was questioning the official tally of the coronavirus cases. But we've seen this in Ethiopia, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Somalia, uh, in, in Zimbabwe. The International Press Institute, IPI, is actually tracking media freedom violations during the pandemic and is actually very concerned about the situation in Africa, which is quite acute. And, and Reporters Without Borders, RSF, just in April, actually indicated that Zimbabwe is currently Africa's biggest press freedom violator. The issues really range from censorship to acts of intimidation to physical violence. And then we're seeing in countries such as Ethiopia, for example, social media harassment, which is quite strong. I mean, uh, Tom Gardner, for example, who reports for The Economist and The Guardian, was openly accused of being a coronavirus carrier by a troll with over 50,000 followers. In Nigeria, in Liberia, we're seeing media organizations actually having their access to the president's office being really limited. And even in Madagascar, we're seeing some radio station banning some phone in programs where listeners 
could express their views about the pandemic and the way the government is dealing with it. So it's really a complex dynamic here at stake, but it's definitely a very dangerous one. What's really interesting, Antonio, is that you've listed out a number of democracies and autocracies that are doing these things. And maybe South Africa is such an interesting example because, as you said, it's one of the strongest democracies, a great tradition of press freedom. Are these laws being rushed through without thinking through the secondary consequences? Is there something more nefarious going on? How do these laws get on the books when we're talking about countries with such strong democratic traditions? Well, it's definitely an unprecedented circumstance. I mean, we, I think the world has never experienced anything of this scale. And so, and by the way, misinformation is, is really an issue. I mean, we, we've all seen the level of misinformation that has even uh, triggered companies such as Facebook, which have always taken the stand that they're actually not uh, becoming the arbiter of the truth, actually taking measures to uh, limit the flurry of misinformation. So I guess there is, a, as I said, unintended consequences. Governments are really struggling to ensuring that the public is informed, but the unintended the consequences can be really, really challenging. I mean, South Africa definitely falls into, into this category, but there are other countries where these legislations are actually more sinister and more disturbing. I mean, if you look at uh, what's happening in, in, in other countries, including Burundi, for example, which ranks 160 in the uh, World Press Freedom Index, so it's really low. I mean, we're, we're talking about 177 countries being listed. You know, it, it really varies from country to country. And even in Europe, we've seen really, really dangerous precedents. I mean, in Hungary, again, member of the EU since 2004, we got President Viktor Orban, who's effectively been handed unprecedented emergency powers from the parliament. And there's a now a five-year prison sentence for anyone who spreads false information and is yet to be defined who actually decides what false information is. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I'm asking you to talk about the Africa section, but if you read Antonio's article, it's a global problem and he does address global countries, both in the developed and developing world. But this point about misinformation is so important. And one of my key resources is Africa Check. And Lee, you know, you talk about how the WHO has called this an infodemic, which they define as an overabundance of information, some accurate and some not, that makes it hard for people to find trustworthy sources and reliable guidance when they need it. I'll tell you that I go to Africa Check. That's where I go to get trustworthy sources and guidance. And I think our audience would really value understanding AfriCheck's mission and then some of the work that you're doing during the outbreak and maybe just helpful to walk through some of the most illustrative that you've actually been able to uh, debunk. Thank you, Judd. Africa Check is a nonpartisan organization that exists to promote accuracy and honesty in public debate and the media in Africa. So for us to do this effectively, we follow the best practices in fact-checking, which are recognized by leading nonpartisan fact-checking organizations around the world, specifically the International Fact-Checking Network, which is based in Florida, right there in the United States. You might be aware of U.S.-based fact-checkers such as factcheck.org, PolitiFact, and the Washington Post fact-checker. So we all essentially adhere to the fundamental operating principles of a commitment to impartiality, transparency, and to accuracy. This code of principles is the result of broad consultations between ourselves and other nonpartisan fact-checkers from around the world. So as Africa Check, we are physically present in four African countries, South Africa, Kenya, Senegal, and Nigeria. But we also actively nurture fact-checking organizations in several countries in the region because we know we cannot tackle the problem alone. 
we believe that bad information causes real harm to people's lives, people's health, people's finances, and to democracy. But in Africa, perhaps um, this is more notable because we have a weak healthcare system, high levels of unemployment and inequality, which means false information quickly gains traction and can consequently have and does have serious effects. So the coronavirus pandemic has only made this more visible. I hasten to note that the problem of health misinformation has gotten a lot of attention in recent days due to the rise of social networking. Yet it is not terribly new or unfamiliar. Any health crisis will spawn an attendant pandemic of misinformation. In the 80s, 90s, 2000s, we saw the spread of dangerous misinformation around AIDS that the HIV virus was created in a laboratory or that tests for the virus were unreliable or the punting of unproven cures such as goat's milk. So we've pretty much seen the same with this pandemic with the obvious difference being that it is at internet scale. From our experience fact-checking the pandemic, all misinformation is not created equal. We've seen what false cures, claims of a vaccine, conspiracy theories, manipulated content, hoaxes, you name it. But false claims of cures are a particular concern to us because they can cause physical harm or hurt other efforts dedicated to fighting the pandemic. Of distress to us, has been influential leaders touting untested treatments to their followers. We saw Tanzania's president urging his compatriots to inhale steam as it would disintegrate the virus that causes COVID-19 as it is made up of fat. But experts we spoke to told us there's no evidence for this and it could even hurt people due to the dangerous temperatures involved. Imagine breathing in, what, 100 degrees. It is unlikely to end very well for you. Remember also, this is a country which has stopped issuing data and has declared itself free of the pandemic. In Madagascar to the south, we saw the president touting an unproven Artemisia-based tonic as a treatment for the virus. Artemisia is an ingredient in malaria cures. The dangers of the Madagascar approach thus quickly become apparent. Indeed, in Nigeria, there were reported cases of chloroquine poisoning as people rushed to buy it up as a cure. In Kenya, we saw the governor of the capital, Nairobi, putting cognac, Hennessy, in, uh, specifically in food parcels to poor families, with the claim that it can sanitize the roads and kill the virus. The World Health Organization specifically warns against this, that the use of alcohol is likely to worsen symptoms should one contract the coronavirus. We have also debunked a lot of conspiracy theories, such as 5G's supposed link to COVID-19 and that U.S. tech billionaire Bill Gates has dark intentions for the continent through his support for vaccines. Perhaps if you allow me, I can speak quickly to sources of false information. While in the U.S., for example, a lot of misinformation originates from closed communities and the anonymous web before moving into social media networks and mainstream media, in the countries we work in, we have found that the source has almost always directly been social media networks. We think that this is likely because there's a low barrier to entry, but also because communities in Africa are more open socially and decidedly less ideological in their worldviews. So to sum up, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to the problem of misinformation. And well, and Lee, that's, there's also the challenge around WhatsApp. I don't know if you're counting that as social media or not, but you have a feature called, uh, am I getting this right, What's Crap on WhatsApp? That's right. 
I know there's been some great studies around Nigeria around how WhatsApp is almost more problematic because you're getting that information from family or friends and you then ascribe more credibility to it than just watching it on Twitter or Facebook. Is that your understanding as well? Or how do you think about WhatsApp versus other platforms? WhatsApp is a particular challenge to fact checkers because it is end-to-end encrypted. And so we struggle to get data as to how misinformation travels through the application. So um, we got the idea to come up with the What's Crap on WhatsApp show, which is a voice not show that essentially crowdsources misinformation from people who have subscribed to it. So we ask people to send the kind of misinformation or what they think is suspect or dodge to us. And we then take it through our normal fact-checking processes and send it back to our subscribers as a voice not show. And um, we've had a lot of very positive feedback to it. Thanks, Lee. And we're going to put links to some of the things that you mentioned on the show notes so people can check it out. But I want to bring Ambassador Liberi back into the conversation. I think we're talking about two related challenges, right? One is the attack on media freedoms that Antonio mentioned, and then both Antonio and Lee talked about the proliferation of misinformation. And the consequences are almost all counterproductive. Loss of trust in science, undermining of democracy, harmful potential policy outcomes. I'd love to get your sense of what the conversation. And then as a former diplomat, how do foreign policy experts, professionals, both in the region and outside of the region, how do they support the work of Thomson Reuters Foundation, Africa Check, and other institutions that are trying to address these problems? I think that what Antonio and Lee have raised are very, very important issues. And if I could just go back to a bit of what Antonio raised, you know, the playbook that he laid out is not just regarding COVID or even health-related issues. When you go down the checklist of having countries control the narrative, silence the criticism, and then use that as an opportunity to seize more power. We've certainly seen that in many, many countries. I know that when I was in Burundi, this was actually the playbook that was used leading up to the 2015 elections when I was there. And uh, unfortunately, that continued to play out just to these most recent elections in 2020. When I first arrived there, I said that Burundi might be an opportunity to show itself as a model for post-conflict reconciliation. And then unfortunately, over time, many of the issues that we're speaking about happened and it pertained to the media, to civil society, to issues related to human rights abuses as well. So more and more, the government started to control the narrative. It started to really clamp down on any of the political opposition, limiting freedom of speech, really targeting those who were in the opposition, anyone who was saying anything against the government, so focusing on silencing criticism, and then using that as an opportunity to seize more power. And as an antidote to that, what the U.S. tries to do, and I think many other countries, is to try to continue to support the free press. We certainly provide a number of grants to press organizations, We try to ensure that journalists are given access, certainly to the kind of media stories that we see that are important to counter the narrative that some countries are trying to put forward. And the United States spends a lot of funding for non-governmental organizations to essentially increase the role of civil society and to ensure that there is a counterbalance to a narrative that's only being done and said by the government. 
And I think increasing these kinds of programs in sub-Saharan Africa and other places around the world is one of the key mechanisms that the US government uses to ensure that the values of democracy, freedom of speech, reducing human rights abuses, et cetera, are there and can actually help societies that want to move toward democratic consolidation. Antonio, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we're going, right? How bad can this get? And what are the investments, advocacy we need to do to address these threats? And and maybe they're doubling down on what Ambassador Liberi said, but if there's anything from uh, the foundation that you're thinking about or the next steps in terms of policy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I guess the key message that I that I hear here is definitely it's a tough moment in history and it's to a certain extent also unprecedented because it has created the perfect conditions for a clampdown on media freedom. The law is really risking being weaponized here, whether in different ways and, and shape, but press freedom remains. And this is, I guess, something that's been emerging during this conversation, quite fragile across sub-Saharan Africa. We, we've seen arrests, we've seen arbitrary detention going up, and, and there is also this sense of really complete impunity. And the fact remains that you cannot have free and informed societies if you don't have a free media. And free and informed societies are wealthier and in this case are also healthier. What we're trying to do, we're giving journalists the tools that they need to be equipped to report facts accurately and with freedom from bias. And at the moment, we are actually working a lot in the continent with an initiative that is called Coronavirus Crisis Reporting Hub, which is basically a virtual hub that that connects journalists in the Global South, in Africa. We're doing work at the moment in Kenya, Nigeria, Tanzania, Ghana, and South Africa. And we are connecting them with subject matter experts, in in this case, obviously related to health. But also we are connecting them with journalists that have been covering this pandemic in countries like South Korea and Italy, for example. So journalists that have actually been at the front lines of reporting this crisis with the idea of sharing best practice and actually empowering uh, the local media. Because it's going back to this point, you cannot have a free and informed society without a free media. That's great. Lee, any last thoughts from you? At this time, misinformation can feel like it is spreading at the speed of light and to a global audience, just due to just how much more social networking we have. So my view is that the entire information ecosystem, governments, the media, big tech, fact-checkers, audiences, have a role to play in countering this groundswell of misinformation. For example, how do we help the media step up to the plate effectively in upholding public health, especially at a time of fierce competition for audiences and dwindling revenue? But I would caution against some hasty approaches that we have seen, such as the criminalization of misinformation by governments. This is a slippery slope as... Antonio has so accurately stated. What if instead of looking to make false information a crime, we offered better information to audiences instead? What if we involved vulnerable communities at every step of the search for solutions? If we personally make an effort not to be susceptible to false information, I can tell you for free that we'll be in a much better space right now. Let me thank my guests and uh, we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.